well, hey, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers at Regency. I just wanted to thank you for checking out this message. We're praying that God uses this message to draw your heart closer to Him. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we want to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. If you'd like to find out more information about Regency or to check out some other resources, visit our website at regencycc.org. Today we are kicking off a new sermon series that we're calling Created for Good. And over the next several weeks, we're going to walk through the letter that is written to the church in Ephesus, a letter that we call Ephesians. I want to talk a little bit about kind of introing what's going on in in this letter. It's written by a man that we know as the Apostle Paul. But before he's known as the Apostle Paul, he's known as Saul. And Saul is actually born around the same time that Jesus would have been born, but he lived a little over 300 miles away in this little town called Tarsus. And he grows up as a good Jewish boy. He learns his Hebrew Bible. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the same tribe that King Saul was from. There's a lot of heritage being a Benjamite. And he grows up learning his Hebrew Bible, and he does so well learning his Hebrew Bible that he's actually chosen to become part of this strict religious uh, religious sect called the Pharisees and they were they knew that God's law better than most they kept God's law very strictly uh, it was really important to them and not only was he a member of the Pharisees but in other places he actually refers to himself as a zealot he was very zealous for God and what that means is that he believed everyone should follow Yahweh Jehovah God and if you didn't You should either be given the chance to change, or you shouldn't be on the earth. And that's why we see Saul, when we meet him in the book of Acts, he's persecuting these Jesus followers. You see, Saul grew up learning his Bible. He knew what the Bible said about the Messiah, and the one who would come who would rescue Israel, but he didn't believe it was Jesus. I'm sure he heard about Jesus as he's growing up, being around the same age, especially in those three, three and a half years that Jesus was doing all this powerful stuff. I'm sure Saul, 300 miles away, had heard about what was happening, but he doesn't get to see him up close. He never had the chance to meet him until Saul is actually on his way to his town called Damascus, and he's got letters in hand with the authority to throw these Jesus followers in jail. He had already consented to the death of a young man named Stephen that we read about in the book of Acts. And now he's going to persecute and imprison any of these followers of Jesus. And on the way, he's going to recount this story of what happens to him his entire life. But in the letter, in the book of Acts, three times he talks about what happens on this day. All of a sudden, this great light shone around him and it blinded him. And Jesus himself appears to Saul. He talks about it in Acts 26 as he's standing in front of King Agrippa. Let's pick up Acts 26, starting in verse 13. He says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith 
in me. So he has this moment where Jesus appears to him, and it's, it shakes him so bad that he actually becomes a follower of Jesus. The one who imprisoned followers of Jesus is now himself a follower of Jesus. And the first thing Paul does is he starts preaching in the name of Jesus. But there are people who don't like that. In fact, they try to kill him. Isn't that ironic? And so he flees and he runs to this area called Arabia. And he spends about three years or so in Arabia. And there's not really anything written about what happens with Paul while he's in Arabia. But what some have speculated is, and what I personally think he's doing, is he's going back through the story of the Hebrew Bible, through what we call the Old Testament. He's rereading everything. And he's trying to figure out, how did I miss it? I mean, I've waited for the Messiah my whole life. I've learned all of this scripture. I've memorized all of this scripture. I was a Pharisee. All this stuff happened. How did I miss Jesus as the Messiah? And he starts connecting the dots. And he starts crafting together this renewed theology, this full understanding of what God was doing in Genesis, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in Joshua and Judges, all the way through to Jesus himself. He's putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And I don't know if he's got a little community of, of people that he's bouncing his ideas off of. It, we just don't know. But what we know is that after about three years, he comes back to Jerusalem. And he joins the other apostles and followers of Jesus. And at first, they're afraid. They don't know if Paul is like a spy who's claiming to have his life changed by Jesus, but really, he's going to throw them in jail. It's been three years since that happened, but they don't know what's going on with Paul. And this guy by the name of Barabbas, whose name means son of encouragement, comes alongside of Saul, throws his arm around him and says, no guys, we're going to accept them because I believe he's telling us the truth. And Paul tells them this story about how Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus, how he had seen Jesus himself. And they can't help but receive him not only as a follower of Jesus, but as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then they pray over Paul, and they pray over uh, Barnabas and Silas, and Paul's going to go on a series of missionary journeys three different times. He's going to take some different people with him. And on one of these journeys, he's going to make his way to this little town called Ephesus. Ephesus was established around 1000 BC by some Greek settlers. It, it sits right on the coast, if you can see, right on the right side of that screen. If you're watching online, sorry, there's no map for you. You can pull it up uh, a little bit later. But right on the right side of the screen, you're going to see that little port city called Ephesus. It's right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The port's not there anymore. Erosion has taken it away. But it was a port city. And what we know about port cities, especially as Mobile is a port city, is that a lot of people come through Ephesus. It was a major thoroughfare into this area of Asia Minor. And so Paul goes into Ephesus, and he's actually going to spend about three years while he's there. Now, there's some other really cool stuff about Ephesus. The next picture is going to show you the temple of Artemis. This is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It's this foreign god named Artemis that a lot of the people in Ephesus would worship, and they built this gigantic structure. I mean, that, that's impressive right there to be built, especially in the ancient world. And the other interesting thing about Ephesus is there was a, a theater. The next picture shows a 10,000-seat theater. Now, that would have been awesome if we could have gone to a concert in Ephesus at that theater. I mean, It'd be awesome to go to a concert, but to have gone to a concert at Ephesus would be amazing. This, this town was thriving. There's a lot going on. It's one of the reasons why Paul goes there. 
And as he gets into Ephesus, some interesting things happen. A lot of this is recorded in Acts chapters 19 and 20. Let's pick up in Acts 19 verse 11. It says that as Paul came into Ephesus, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even the face cloth, even his face mask and the aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out. I had no idea they wore face masks in Bible times and apparently they were really effective if they touched Paul's face and then touched you, it would heal you of all diseases. That's a little bit of joke in there, okay? You don't have to laugh. It wasn't that funny. But the point is that whatever Paul touched had power because of God. And the, this whole city experiences this revival. Could you imagine being in Ephesus? Like, hey, Paul, can I borrow your handkerchief? I need to go heal my brother who's blind. I, Paul, I don't need you to go. I just need the the cloth that you blow your nose in, that will do all the work that we need. It had to have been amazing. All these people are now becoming followers of Jesus. Paul and those that are with him are preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And you've got Jews and Gentiles that are being converted to Christianity. And the name of Jesus is growing in this area. Can you imagine how awesome it would be to be in a place like this and experience revival? Wouldn't it be awesome to be in the city of Mobile and experience that kind of revival? But as we know about revival, it doesn't last long. In fact, there were some people who didn't like that there was a revival going on, that all these people were following Jesus. And so they started a riot. And they got the people fired up, and they decided they wanted to kill Paul. So he has to leave. And he gets out of town, and he travels to, not too far away, to this little area called Miletus. And he's been in this city for three years at this point. He's built relationships. It's the longest he stayed in any place that we know of on his missionary journeys. Three years building up these churches, working with these people, baptizing some of them, teaching people who have baptized many, helping some of these men turn into shepherds, helping a lot of these people understand what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ, working through a lot of their issues. And now he's got to leave. And he goes to Ephesus, excuse me, he goes to Miletus, and he calls for the elders of the churches in Ephesus to come join him. And in Acts 20, I, I encourage you to read it, there's this really tender moment. I would have loved to have seen it, seen the emotion in the room. And Paul knows he'll never see them again. He encourages this group of shepherds, prays over them, he embraces them, he warns them of things to watch out for, and he encourages them as they're going to lead God's people, knowing he'll never see their faces ever again. Sometime later, Paul crafts this letter that we call Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is kind of unique because it's very likely a circulated letter. What I mean by that is it's, it got its start in Ephesus, which is probably why we call it the letter to the Ephesians. But he doesn't address specific people in Ephesus, much like he does like in the letter to the Colossians, in the Corinthians, in the letter to the Romans. He doesn't address specific people because he knows this letter is kind of generic. This is like his overall theology of what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. We'll get to that in just a minute uh, to help kind of set what we're going to do for the next several weeks. But this is a very gener generic letter because he wants every church to read this. He wants everybody to understand what God is doing. And so it was more of a generic letter in that 
one church would receive it, they would read it, and then they would pass it on, and the next church would read it, and they would uh, understand it, and then they would pass it on, and it would make its way around this entire region, not just to Ephesus, but in the surrounding communities around Ephesus, and as far as this letter can, can actually travel. It's a really powerful letter. And this letter is Paul's understanding of what God is doing. Let's talk a little bit about letter writing. So in in Bible times, letter writing is very different than maybe what you thought, and definitely what I thought, until I studied a little bit more into this. I just had this mental image of Paul sitting down at a desk with maybe some parchment and maybe, you know, some type of ink pen or quill or whatever whatever they wrote with during that time, and he'd just start writing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints who are in Ephesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I just assume he started writing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly... And he just, man, he just writes it all out and he gets to the end of chapter 6 and period on it, roll it up, fold it up, seal it, here you go, send that one on. That's not how it worked. Not even close. In fact, Paul didn't write this letter alone. He actually names the people that he wrote this letter with. He names them as Timothy, Sosthenes, and Silas. It was more of a community effort. And they didn't just write it in one sitting, and they didn't just write it over a couple of days. They would have written it over a period of weeks and months as they're traveling around, as they're in their rooms at night, as they gather together, and they're talking through the message that they want to communicate. And very likely in different notebooks and other pieces of paper, they would have written out different sections of this letter. And they said, yeah, that's good. Oh, let's change this wording. Let's reorder that a little bit. All right, I like that paragraph. Let's put that here. Let's lead with that. Oh, that really follows up well. Let's go second with that. Here, let's put this third. No, not that's not best third. I think we need to put that towards the end. Good idea. And they would have moved things around and crafted things together to be in the perfect order because here's what you find when you read through the letter to the Ephesians. You find order. It's so awesome, the patterns that you see that are laid out in this letter that unlock some deeper understanding as to what Paul is talking about. It's beautiful. As this community of people, these four men came together to craft this letter guided by the Holy Spirit. Letter writing was really expensive. It's been estimated that the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, would have cost somewhere around $2,300. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of postage, ain't it? $2,300, partly because of how much the parchment cost, partly because they had to pay certain people to help them. Would have hired very likely a secretary of sorts, someone who had been specifically trained in literary styles and composition. Much like if you were to write a book, you would have a publisher, you would have an editor, someone who would help you say, hey, this is really bad grammar. Hey, where'd you learn to spell? Let's go back and learn that again. Hey, you can't use commas here. That sentence is a run-on. We need to, if you were to write a book, that's exactly what you would experience. They'd send it back to you in drafts and say, fix this, change this, made changes here, until finally you got the final copy. That's exactly what happened, which is one of the reasons why it was so expensive. And then finally, the final draft was ready. And then they selected someone. They select this person who's known as the carrier. They're going to deliver the letter. But it's not just they're going to come in and hand it off. They're actually going to deliver it and perform it. They're going to read it aloud to the first audience. They're going to perform it. And then they're actually going to take it, and they're going to go to the next place and the next place, and this is their job for the next little while to perform this letter. They've been with the authors of this letter. They've worked through exactly how it needs to be delivered. 
They've given it a trial run, and maybe Paul says, no, 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 you, you missed the emphasis. The emphasis is not here, it's here. When you get to this point, you've got to raise your voice. You've got to give some inflection. You've got to stomp your feet. You've got to throw your hand up. You've got to say, point number one. That's what we learned in Lads the Leader's speech. Point number one, right? You've got to end it with a poem. That's what my grandmother always taught me if she happens to listen to this letter, this uh, lesson. They would have walked through exactly how they wanted it to be delivered, because they didn't want him to just go in and say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the saints who are in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. It would have been delivered much like sermon would be. Could you imagine being there in the church on that day? Hey, guys, he's here. He's got Paul's letter. Let's gather around. That person would have delivered it in a powerful way. And maybe sitting there, you don't understand. He said, hey, I got a question. What do you mean by this section? And because they've spent time with the author, they would begin to explain what that section meant. What, why he used that word, that phrase. Hey, help me make the connections here. Well, in Isaiah, in Genesis, in Deuteronomy, oh yeah, now I get it. It's what they would have done. Man, how awesome that would have been. So let's talk about Paul's letter to the Ephesians. What's it about? It's actually about Paul's apocalypse. What comes to mind when you hear that word, apocalypse? I know for me, some interesting things originally popped into my mind, like wars breaking out in the heavens, uh, you know, craziness going on, end of the time, stuff getting burned up, you know, probably being afraid, probably like you feel when you open the book of Revelation, kind of puts a little bit of fear in your heart, like, ah, shut that, we're going to save that for another time, right? Not ready for that, don't know what it means. Well, that's really not what the word apocalypse means means. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is about this apocalypse that he has. In fact, let's look at the text to see what he's talking about. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to dive into the middle of the letter because this is what the letter's about. And if we can understand this, we can understand his entire letter. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, on behalf of the Gentiles, assuming you heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, meaning he sent me to the Gentiles specifically, the mystery, this secret that we had missed was made known to me by revelation. There's our word, Greek word, apocalypsis. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So, as I have written briefly above, by reading this, by reading this letter, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Here's, he just lays it out there for us. The point of this letter is so that you can understand my apocalypse. Let's talk about what that word apocalypse actually means. It means a revealing. It means an uncovering. It means to, to lay it all out there in illumination, which I find really interesting because every time Paul recounts his conversion story of becoming a follower of Jesus, he always talks about the bright light that shone around him, how he was illuminated to what God was truly doing in and through Jesus Christ. And now he's going to write this letter where he says, I want you to understand my apocalypse, the revelation that God gave to me, how he unveiled, he uncovered, he revealed to me what he's doing in this world. You see, an apocalypse is just simply whenever the bond between heaven and earth becomes visible to you, that is an apocalypse. That's an apocalypse. You remember back in Genesis chapter 28, as you go through the life of Jacob, Jacob is out in the middle of nowhere, I mean, literally in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden he sees what some people call a ladder. The Bible translates it as a ladder. It's really better translated as a staircase. Okay, And on this staircase going... Up and down, from heaven down to earth, are angels. They're just going up and down. 
and his mind is blown. Uh, yours would be too, would it not, if you saw a, a staircase or a ladder with angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth, back from earth, up to heaven. And he goes, I had no idea God was in this place. Well, yeah, they're understanding. They didn't know where God dwelled other than in the heavens. I didn't know God was actually out in the middle of nowhere. And he has this moment of illumination, this moment of revelation. Wow, God's out in the middle of nowhere. Well, if God's out in the middle of nowhere, can God be everywhere? Yeah, God is everywhere. It, it was for Jacob an apocalypse. John writes an entire letter, a really long letter, 22 chapters worth for us, that he calls an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation that Jesus gave to him about what he needed to know about the times that they were dealing with and the hope that they had because the Lamb had conquered, conquered sin, conquered death, conquered the great snake, serpent, the devil, all his legion of followers. The Lamb is victorious. That's the revelation. That's the apocalypse. Well, as you read through Ephesians, you're reading Paul's apocalypse, this illumination of how Paul connected the dots of what God was doing in what we call the Old Testament to Jesus to today. He's going to reveal it. I want to show it to you. It's in chapter 3, verse 6. Here's his apocalypse. This is the climactic point of the book. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We read that and we go, oh, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. That's kind of how I read that. Like, oh, that, that's what the letter leads up to? Gentiles are co-heirs? For Paul, this is life-changing. This is the good news of the gospel to Paul, of what God is doing. So let's unpack it so we can better understand it. The Gentiles, that just means anybody who's not a Jew. Okay, Anybody who's not a Jew, considered a Gentile. So if you're, if you're not Jewish here today, you're a Gentile. It just means you're part of the nations of God. They are co-heirs, members of the same body, partners of the promise. Let's talk about that promise. That promise began all the way back. You could really trace it back to Genesis 3. Definitely pick it up in Genesis 12, the promise that God made to Abraham, that through Abraham's family, all nations of the earth will be blessed. God's going to build a family through Abraham. Remember Abraham who was 75 and he didn't have any kids and his wife was 65 and she was barren? God's going to build a family through a barren woman and an elderly man. In fact, he made made him wait 25 years just to put some icing on the cake, a hundred year old and a 90 year old finally start their family and if you're close to those ages my guess is you're not ready to go back to having an infant in your home that's the promise that God made to Abraham you can follow as the story goes the same promise is traced down to to King David and God tells King David that your uh, your kingdom will never end there's going to be a Messiah that will come from your family line from the line of David who will redeem Israel and restore Israel And they've been tracing this promise all the way through. They've been waiting for the one who would come. And they thought that that promise just meant that God's going to restore Israel back to the world power and everybody's going to serve Israel. Instead of Israel being oppressed, they're going to oppress the whole world, basically. Paul's revelation, his apocalypse, is no, 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 no. God is building a a great big old family that has non-Jews in here today. We are inheritors to the same promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to receive the same inheritance that any child of Abraham is going to receive. Because what Paul was saying in Galatians 3 is that our baptism brings us into the family of Abraham, connects us with 
the promise. We are co-heirs. We're members of the same body. It, it means that he's taken the body of Jews and the body of non-Jews and he's put them together like conjoined twins. They're part of the same body. And God's bringing all this together in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in Ephesians 1 that it's, it's God bringing heaven and earth together in the body of Jesus Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul's great revelation is that God is uniting heaven and earth in Jesus as he builds this great big old family of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. All races, genders, ethnicities, we're all coming together as a great big old family and we are all mutual and equal in the kingdom of God. Folks, if that's not what the world needs to hear, I don't know what there is. What our world is longing for what we are losing our minds over is answered in the gospel and it will only be answered in the gospel. We will only find true equality and mutuality in the kingdom of God because outside of the kingdom of God, power will always be abused. People will always be oppressed, but not in the kingdom. What the world desperately needs is the body of Christ, the church, the family of God. We're all are equal because we are all inheriting the promise that God made to Abraham that he's going to bless through this family. That is Paul's good news. It's not just a message that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. That is a part of it, and that is awesome, folks. But it's not all of it. It's that God's building a big old family. One day, we've talked about it, we're going to be around this great big old table going to be people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, all God's children, celebrating being in the presence of our King. God is doing all of that through Jesus Christ. And so what he does in chapters 1 through 3, I want you to understand this as we walk through it, is in chapters 1 through 3, he's going to define his apocalypse. This is what it is. This is what it meant for Israel. This is what it means for Gentiles. Here's how it all comes together. Then in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to apply his apocalypse. Here's what it looks like to live as a new creation made in the sight of God. It, it looks like this new humanity with renewed desires. Our desires are, are, are reshaped because we are now living in the kingdom of God. We are living like Jesus Christ, new humans created in his image. And then he's going to talk about how our relationships are redefined. That's not just about being in a position of power. Here's how husbands and wives are to live together in the kingdom of God as new creations. Here's how slaves and masters are to live together in the kingdom of God. Here's how parents and children are to live together in the kingdom of God as new creations. He's going to redefine those most common relationships that many of us experience today. And he's going to talk about how we have a renewed heart. What God is truly trying to do within us he renews us in his sight. That is the letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to spend the next many weeks trying to gain a better understanding of Paul's apocalypse. Because for Paul, this letter was incredibly important. He'd spent at least three years isolated in Arabia, crafting this message together. He poured it out in every place that he went. He wants every person to understand it. And he prays for us to understand it. So here's our prayer for you as we go through this study. 
Our prayer for you is that you have an apocalypse as well. That you have this moment of illumination. You ever had one of those aha moments where you go, oh, I get it now. I missed it. Maybe you were watching a TV show and you didn't really understand the plot. You're like, what in the world? This is so weird. And right before you give it up, you give it one more episode and then you're like, oh, that is awesome. Great job. If you watch WandaVision, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, ah, she's controlling it all. And if I just spoiled that for you, you've had plenty of time to get through it by now. But it's a moment of illumination where you're like, ah, aha, I get it. Paul's prayer for you is that you get it. Do you have this moment where you go, oh, God, I see now what you're doing. I see what you're doing through Jesus. I see how my relationships need to be redefined. I see how my heart needs to be renewed. I see how my desires need to be reshaped into the image of Jesus. Yeah, I, get, I now get the point of the church, the point of God's family. I see it now. Our prayer is that you have a similar experience to that. But before we go, I've got some homework for you. At some point this week, I challenge you, read through Ephesians from start to finish in one sitting. It'll only take you about 15 to 20 minutes. It won't take you long at all. Read it from start to finish. As we go through it, do that a couple of times. But be here each week because we're going to walk through so that we can have a greater understanding of what God is doing in our world. Well, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, it's very likely that you've had that aha moment where you say, oh, Jesus is the Savior and I need to give my life to Him. That's an apocalypse. That's it's a moment of illumination. You're now seeing that life is greater than you. If you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, we'd love to assist you in that. We're ready to do that today. If you need prayers of this body of Christ, this family of believers, because there's some stuff that's going on in your life that you need some strength and encouragement, if you want to respond publicly, we'd love to help you with that. If you need to talk privately after the service, please don't leave here if there's something on your heart that you need to talk through. We want to help you in whatever way that we can. We're going to sing a song. If we can help you, you can make your way to the front as we sing.